Now today, friends, we come to one of the very practical epistles. Very candidly, I think maybe that's a false division to say Romans is a doctrinal epistle and Corinthians is a practical epistle. I don't think that that kind of a division will hold all the time because of the fact that the epistle to the Romans, I trust many of you found it practical. And there's a great deal of doctrine in this epistle to the Corinthians. And this is another great epistle and one that is, I'm afraid, neglected a great deal today. Now, this epistle here is an epistle we should know something about the place to which it was addressed and the circumstances that it was written in under. The city was Corinth. Corinth, as I have put in my notes that many of you have, and I'm reading now, carnal Corinth was the sin center of the Roman Empire in Paul's day. It was labeled Vanity Fair. Its location was about 40 miles west of Athens on a narrow isthmus between Peloponnesus and the mainland. It was a great commercial center of the Roman Empire with three harbors, of which two were important. The Chium, about one and a half miles to the west, and Sancria, about eight and a half miles to the east. It was on this isthmus, and of course today a canal has been put through there, and Corinth is no longer an important city. And in fact, it's been lost for years. But I'd like to add to that introduction today some more information. In Paul's day, there were about 400,000 inhabitants there. When Greece was independent, it was a head of the Achaean League. And in 146 B.C., the Roman general, Mumius, he took this city, destroyed this city, and for a century it lay desolate. And then a hundred years later, in 46 B.C., the emperor Julius Caesar rebuilt it, and its former splendor returned. It was situated on this well-known isthmus that we mentioned, and the commerce of the world actually flowed through the two harbors here at the city of Corinth. The population consisted of Greeks, Jews, Italians, and a mixed multitude, sailors, merchants, adventurers, and refugees from all quarters of the Roman Empire filled the streets. Here was held a perpetual vanity fair. The vices of the East and the West met and clasped hands in the work of human degradation. Religion itself was put to ignoble uses. The Greek goddess Aphrodite had here a magnificent temple in which a thousand priestesses ministered to a base worship. And by the way, friends, these thousand so-called priestesses actually were nothing in the world but prostitutes, and sex was a religion there. Corinth, very frankly, could teach this generation something about sex, but this generation, I think, knows already enough about it and we're overwhelmed with it ad nauseum today. Now, there's something else that we should note here. 
Not only was religion debased, but Greek philosophy was in its decay. And there were just endless discussions. And you notice when Paul arrived there, the thing he said, I determined not to know anything among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was a city given over to nothing in the world but the pleasure and debauchery and drunkenness. In fact, they coined a word in the Roman Empire, and the word was to Corinthianize. And when you would Corinthianize, that means that you went the very limit. Now, Paul came here on his second missionary journey. He came here on his third missionary journey. In fact, it was the terminus. He spent a great deal of time in Corinth, the first time 18 months there. And you will remember he met Aquila and Priscilla here. They had been driven out of Rome, a Claudian edict, that is, the Emperor Claudius. And Suetonius, the Roman writer, tells us that the reason they had to leave was because of the disturbances over Christianity in Rome. Or it was a wave of anti-Semitism. Now, Paul came to Corinth, he preached in the synagogue, and as usual, there was generally a riot. Paul always had a riot, revolution, and a revival everywhere he went, and certainly Corinth was no exception. And we're told that he spent a great deal of time here. But on his third missionary journey, he got bogged down in Ephesus, and it was a good place to bog down because he did his outstanding work in Ephesus as a missionary. Probably that area more thoroughly evangelized than any other. But it caused the Corinthians to become disturbed, and they were baby Christians, and they were urging him to come. So he wrote a letter to correct some of the errors that had come into that church. And they had certain questions that they had wanted to know about, political questions, religious questions, domestic questions, questions about heathenism and morality, and all of those. And so Paul wrote a letter, and that letter apparently we do not have today. And then there were more reports brought to him, and they became more insistent. Paul sat down and wrote what we have today is First Corinthians, the one we're going to look at. And then we find that Paul then later on wrote the second one. Now we have in this first epistle, and this is very important for us to note, we have the supremacy of Christ, the lordship of Jesus. Oh, that's important because that's a solution to the problems. And you have here that he is the solution to correct the moral, social, and ecclesiastical disorders. And you have here also the true doctrine of the resurrection. That makes this epistle tremendously significant. And that's the epistle that we're going to enter now. I'd like to give you the division that I have made of it. And if I did it over again... I would make another division, or at least I would break it up just a little. What we should have here really is the three major divisions. You have the salutation and thanksgiving in the first nine verses. 
Then you have concerning conditions in the Corinthian church. And in that section, Paul deals with carnalities. And then we find that when you get to chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritualities. And these spiritualities are far more important than the carnalities. But the very interesting thing is, and I think probably we ought to make that statement here, is this, that 1,900 years ago, the church in Corinth was beset with problems. They'd lost sight of the main objective, and they had gotten away from the person of Christ, and they were overwhelmed by these problems. Now today, the contemporary church is likewise beset with problems. And it's almost shocking to discover that the problems of the church are the same as they were at Corinth 1,900 years ago. And I believe that the real problem today is that we've lost sight of the centrality of Christ crucified. We've lost sight of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That was the problem here and we're going to see it as we get into this epistle. And probably we ought to get into the epistle. Now we open with the salutation and thanksgiving that Paul gives us here in the first nine verses. And by the way, this is a very wonderful section that we're getting in here. Now let me begin. And if you have your Bible, I hope you'll follow along. I'm reading now verse 1, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, will you notice that the little verb to be is in italics. That means it's not in the original, and it should be. Paul called an apostle. That means this is the kind of an apostle he is, a called apostle. God called him. The Lord Jesus Christ waylaid him on the Damascus road. The Spirit of God taught him off yonder in the desert of Arabia. He is a called apostle, and this is the kind of an apostle that he is. And we'll see that again in Galatians. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And the will of God is what made him an apostle. That is the important thing. And it's wonderful today to be able to say, I'm where I am. And I'm doing what I'm doing because of the will of God. Is that your situation today. If you can say that, I don't need to add, you're a very happy, joyful Christian. And you're not only a happy, joyful Christian, but you're one that is well-oriented into life. You have no frustrations. Oh, you have these little things that come up. But down deep underneath, there is that tremendous satisfaction. Paul could say, here, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes 
was with him, and he was sending the message. Apparently, he'd brought the message from the church, and now he's going to take it back, and he's the one joining with Paul in this. Now, it's under the church of God, which is at Corinth. The important thing to note, it's the church of God here, as it's called, because he is the one, that is the architect, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, the church is at Corinth, but it's in Christ Jesus. And the address is not important, but the person of Christ is all important. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be in Christ, as we've stated before. And whether you're at Los Angeles or at Corinth or at Ephesus or at New York City, that is incidental. The important thing, are you in Christ Jesus? Now he speaks here, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, sanctification is used in several different ways, as we saw in Romans. There is positional sanctification. That's the position we have in Christ. And when sanctification is joined to God the Father or God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's generally positional. But when it's connected with the Holy Spirit, then that is practical sanctification. We will find a little later on in this epistle that Christ has been made unto us sanctification along with wisdom and righteousness and redemption. He is our sanctification. You see, you're not going to heaven, friends, until you're perfect. And I'm not either. And you want to know something, I'm not perfect. Not even near it. fact of the matter is, if you knew me like I know myself, you'd turn the radio off. But wait a minute, don't turn it off. Because if I knew you like you know yourself, I wouldn't speak to you. So let's just stay connected here, if you don't mind. And sanctification is a position we have in Christ. And if you've trusted him, he's been made over to you, your sanctification. And you're as saved right now as you'll be a million years from today, because you're saved in Christ, and you can't add anything to that. But there is a practical sanctification, and that is something that varies for some. These Corinthians, they don't sound like sanctified saints, but they are because they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. But the work of the Holy Spirit wasn't very much in evidence in their lives. Now, they're called not to be saints because, again, to be here, the verb is in italics. They're called saints. Now, just as Paul is a called apostle, we're called saints. That's our name. You do not become a saint by what you do. You become a saint because of your position in Christ. And the word saint actually means set aside to God. Every Christian should be set aside to God. For instance, those old beat-up pans and vessels in the tabernacle later in the temple, they were called holy vessels. Holy? Yes. They were for the use of God. And a child of God is a saint, or holy, on what basis? Well, he's for the use of God. That is, we ought to be for the use of God. But this is a position that we have. We are called saints. And you're not a saint by what you do. 
your position in Christ, and mankind's divided up between the saints and the ain'ts. And if you ain't in Christ, you're an ain't. If you're in Christ, you're a saint because of your position. Now, we're told here that call saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. And I could change this around just a little and say, with all that in every place, both theirs and ours, who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now he uses his usual introduction, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, these two great words, and we've dealt with them several times before, and we will be dealing with them again. And in this epistle, I'd like to pass by them because there's some other things we want to emphasize. Now he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you And the word by here again should be in Jesus Christ. You see, it's in Christ that we have all of these blessings, blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ, in the heavenlies, in Christ. That is the place of blessing for you. And actually, it should be here, Christ Jesus. And somebody says, Was that important? Well, it was to Paul. Paul tells us he never knew him after the flesh. He never knew the Jesus who walked this earth in the days of his flesh. I think he saw him. I think he was present at the crucifixion. He saw the resurrected Christ. And to Paul, he was always the Lord of glory. And in most of his epistles, you will find that it should be Christ Jesus. And it should be here, Christ Jesus. Now, will you notice that in everything ye are enriched by him, and it should be in him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. And this is what Paul is talking about over in Colossians 3.16 when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, I can't sing. How am I going to get by? Well, if I can't sing it, I can say it. And that means the Word of God, by the way. There are several denominations that sing the psalms. I think you could sing the whole business from Genesis to Revelation if you could sing I can't sing, but it's to have the Word of Christ in our hearts. That's the most important thing. And friends, that does not necessarily mean to memorize it. That means to obey Him. That's the important thing. Christ is in your heart. You're obeying Him, and you're thinking upon Him. He occupies your mind and your heart. Some of the meanest little brats that I have ever met of those that have memorized over a hundred verses of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't memorize Scripture because there's some mean brats that memorize it. just simply means just to memorize Scripture is not really the answer, and it doesn't mean to hide it in your heart like that. You hide it in your heart, my friend, when you obey him, when you think about him, 
when you're occupied with Christ, and that is the solution of our problems. When he becomes the Lord of your life, he'll solve many of your problems, and that's what Paul's going to talk about in this epistle. Now he says in verse 6, "...even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, he intimates here one of the problems that the church was having. They were very carnal. They'd gone off in just one gift here. And Paul, just at the very beginning, he says, I don't want you to come behind in any gift. And it's just not one gift. There are many gifts. And I want the church to have all these gifts manifested in the church, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, that means to be occupied with him, who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless. Now, that doesn't mean faultless, because there'll be somebody else going to find fault with you, but you can be not worthy of blame, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is not only today, but it's that day when he's going to come and take his church out of the world. And Paul will talk about that in this epistle also. We have now verse 9, the last verse of this introduction, the salutation and thanksgiving. And this is a verse that you could very easily pass over, and you'd feel like maybe that you hadn't really miss very much. And yet I feel that verse 9 is probably the key to the epistle. It emphasizes here the Lord Jesus Christ as being the solution to the problem, but it also emphasizes how he's the solution to all the problems that they had in the church and the personal problems they had in Corinth among believers there. And as we've said before, it's startling to note the similarity between the problems in the Corinthian church and the problems today. And the solution, I believe, is the same as it was then. Now, let's come to verse 9 and spend just a moment with this verse here. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you've noticed that we've had the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned in this section in practically every verse. And when I say practically every verse, I mean every verse. Beginning with the first verse, he's mentioned, verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and now nine. In other words, this is the ninth reference to him in nine verses. So apparently, Paul is putting an emphasis upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he makes two tremendous statements here. God is faithful, by whom you were called under the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we have an extended name given to our Lord here. He is called the fellowship of his Son, God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that there are 
four points of identification of him here. So there's no way of misunderstanding. Now, the word that is important here is the word fellowship in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've had this word before us before, and the word here is koinonion. And koinonion is used by Paul again and again. And fellowship here actually has several different meanings. It means fellowship as we understand it today. Also, Paul used it to refer to the contribution. He told about taking up a fellowship for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And that word is koinonia. He was taking up a contribution. And then he speaks actually in this epistle. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, he speaks of the communion here. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And he uses that word koinonion. It means communion. It can mean dispensation. It can mean partnership. And that's a good word for it, partnership. And here is the way I think it should be here. God is faithful by whom you were called into the partnership of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is without doubt one of the greatest privileges that is given to us. Imagine that today when you're in Christ, when you've come to him as your Savior, he is our partner. He's willing to be our partner. And I don't mean to call him that. But he's our partner. The word can mean partaker, and it can mean communication. It has all those wonderful words. Therefore, it means an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there are two ways in which you can have a koinonion or a partnership with Jesus Christ. There is a business partnership. I know two men today. One of them, very fine Christian. These fellows came out of the service years ago. They were friends in the service. They formed a partnership, and one of them got converted. Apparently, the other didn't. And it's been an unhappy partnership ever since, but very difficult to break because they have quite a business, and there's quite an investment that is there. But that's a partnership, but it's not as it should be. Then there's another way in which there is a partnership, and that's a love relationship. Marriage is a partnership in that sense. It's a koinonin on, and it should be a very close, intimate relationship. There's a passage back in the Old Testament, I can't help but smile, and I think I know what God had in mind because he'd been talking about the man and his wife. And he said, among other things, there were several things they were not to do, that they were not to hitch an ox and an ass together in a plow. They're not to plow together. Well, in marriage, I've seen many an ox and ass that have been hitched up together in marriage. Now, not to be, by the way, because marriage is a partnership. 
Now, what does it mean, therefore, to have the Lord Jesus Christ as our partnership? Well, in business, it means that you own the things together. Now, everything that I've got belongs to Jesus Christ. Belongs to him as much as it does me. And he's interested in, therefore, what I own. And he ought to own everything I got. I must say that there was a time when I owned a few things I don't think he cared about. And I'm sure that there was a time when I very selfishly thought only of myself in connection with what I have. I don't have too much. When he's in partnership with me, he's not in what you'd call big business. But what I got is today, I have a car, and I got a nice Chevrolet car because a wonderful dealer helped me get it, you know. And when I drove out with it, and it was mine, <laughs> I told the Lord Jesus that it's his too, you know. And he's ridden with me in it, by the way. I feel like that we ought to bring him into close relationship. He's the owner of that car, too, and whatever I got, it's his. I thank him for my house and thank him for taking care of it, because it's his, too, you see. Whatever I got is his. And then this matter of marriage. Now, that means certain things. You have mutual interests. Now, that means Christ is interested in me, and I'm interested in him. And that carries it to a pretty high plane, you see. And then we have a mutual devotion that's involved. His resources are mine, <laughs> and mine are his. He doesn't get very much, but what I've got in the marriage ceremony, and a very beautiful one, I've never used it like this because I feel like it might be misunderstood. And the bride says, with my body, I thee worship. That is, I present it to you. And he owns me. Now, that has answered quite a few questions today for me about where I can go and what I can do. Now, I'm going to say something. I ought to be very careful about saying this. But I used to smoke quite a bit. I couldn't now, if I wanted to, got cancer in the lungs, and you'd be pretty foolish for me to now. But when I made the discovery, not just that my... God is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, he belongs to me, and I belong to him. And so I want to give him the best body i got. And so I decided that answered the question for me. And I don't know, maybe it won't answer it for you, friends. But it'll have a lot to do with what you do, you see. This thing's on a different plane than I can't do this and I can't do that as a Christian. I belong to Jesus Christ. And... He belongs to me. Then there's something else. Mutual service. That is something that goes in partnership. In other words, he accommodates himself to our weakness and his gentleness. I need his gentleness. And we accept his power. Now, there's a verse of Scripture I'd like to read to you that I think has been mistranslated. And it was called to my attention by Dr. G. Calma Morgan and I've done a little research there, and I'm convinced that our translation is not the accurate one, and it's Isaiah 63, 9. You may want to turn there, because I'm turning there, and I'm going to read it the way it is in my translation. It says, "...in all their affliction 
he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Now, that seems to say in all their affliction he was afflicted, and that's been used to comfort a great many folk. It would mean that he comes down, and in our weakness, he's weak, and that sort of thing. Now, I don't agree with that at all. The better translation is to put in the negative, not in all their affliction. He was not afflicted. And to me, that's lots more meaningful. It means this, that I stumble and fall. Well, he doesn't stumble and fall. He accommodates himself to my stumbling, my blindness, my ignorance, my weakness. He accommodates himself to that. But he doesn't necessarily mean that he becomes weak at all. I heard a preacher once make the statement, you know, he says, now, if you get into trouble and you do that ignorantly without realizing it and you are caught by circumstances, he's going to see you through and he'll help you out of it. But, he says, if you go into it deliberately and foolishly, well, he'll let you alone and not work it out. Well, I want to say to that preacher that that's not my experience. Oh, I have blundered, and I have stumbled, and I have fallen, and I did it deliberately. He didn't let me down. He was there. He accommodated himself to my weakness. Oh, how wonderful this is, friends. And the partnership of Jesus Christ is the solution to the problems of life. And I think there's a verse way over in the 15th chapter You ought to put with this verse, and I think that it goes with it, because we've now finished the salutation, and he's going to deal with a lot of things between. But when you come to the end of the 15th chapter, he says, Therefore, my beloved, the therefore goes back, gathers up all this marvelous epistle, but it goes way back here to verse 9. And notice this, God's faithful. I can depend on the faithfulness of God by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wherefore, or therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's taken me a long time to learn this. In fact, I've had to retire to learn this, that I'm just going ahead with him as my partner, and all these problems that come up that you see today, he's my partner. And therefore, may I say to you, I can count on him, I can look to him, and he's part and parcel of all of it. Therefore, that's the solution to the problems today, the frustrations of life, my beloved. Now we're going to find out that they had some real problems in the Corinthian church. Will you notice this now? I begin in verse 10, and here we are going to see concerning divisions and party spirit. And we have that beginning here at verse 10, all the way through the fourth chapter at verse 21, through the fourth chapter. Now, will you notice, first of all, we have Here, the centrality of Christ crucified corrects divisions. 
Now, will you notice this? Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have ten verses. And in each one of these ten verses, the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned. This epistle emphasizes the Lordship of Christ. We've heard a great deal about it. We see very little of it today. And that's the reason that the church today, and as far as I can tell, I don't know of a church that doesn't have problems. And most Christians have problems today. Now, that's the Lordship of Christ. Not just talking about it. Is he your Lord? Have you made him your Lord and your Master? We saw back in Second Chronicles that you can't have revival until that takes place. Now, listen. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean identical things, but that you're not clawing each other to death, that you're not fighting each other, and that you're not hating each other, that you all speak the same things and that there be no divisions. And the word is schismata, that there be no divisions among you. And the word here means and suggests there's no open break in the church. The church is just fractured. That was all. No break. But it was that infighting, the gossip, the criticism, the hatred, the bitterness. And believe me, I've seen that in churches, friends. Oh, to have that awful bitterness in your heart. My friend, he's your partner. You can't have that in your life, you see that there be no divisions among you, and that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, the same judgment. Now, what is that same mind? What's the mind of Christ? Now, listen to him. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, the word here is strife, quarrel. And the word is Eris, the goddess of strife wranglings, you see, the schisms. There was all of this in the church, and there was strife in that church. And Paul got it firsthand, and he called the name. He says, I got this from Chloe. And friends, if you're going to make a charge, back it up with your name. I had a man that came to me and when I first became pastor in downtown Los Angeles, and he said to me, I want to tell you, Dr. McGee, about a certain situation. And he told me about a certain man and about him. And believe me, it wasn't very nice. And he wanted me to do something about it. He said, I think that you ought to bring this up before the board and that this should be handled. And if they won't handle it, bring it before the church. I said, fine. I said, that's the way it should be done. Now, I said, what night could you come? Oh, he said, I don't intend to come. You're the pastor. Oh, I said, wait a minute. And he said, you're the one to handle it. I said, you're right. I'm the one to handle it. I'm pastor now. But I said, you'll have to be present and make the charge. Oh, he said, I won't do that. Well, I said, if you're not willing to sign your name to it, we'll forget it. And we forgot it because he wasn't willing to sign his name to it. Now, Chloe, I admire Chloe there in Corinth. Because Chloe said how it was. She brought it out in the open and said, there's trouble here in this church. It's bad. And it should be dealt with. Imagine going to the doctor. Imagine when I went to the doctor. He said, now look, we don't want to get excited. We don't want to get disturbed. We don't want to become emotional. 
We don't want to cause any trouble. We want you to have a nice, peaceful mind. I'm just going to sprinkle a little talcum powder on this place, and everything will be all right, and you'll just smell good. Yeah, but my friends, I'd have died of cancer, you see. You've got to deal with cancer, and you've got to deal with trouble in the church. And woe to the man who brings it out in the open. But if it's wrong, friends, it has to be dealt with. And unless it's dealt with, while the church is going to suffer, of course it will. Now, what was the problem in the church there? Well, they had a bunch of baby Christians, and generally the babies do all the howling, you know. That's the ballroom. When we made a room for babies, when I was pastor in Pasadena, we called it the ballroom. But I soon found out in the churches I've been to that you can call the whole church a ballroom because a bunch of babies bawling. Now, will you notice? Now, this I say, that every one of you, Seth, I'm a Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Oh, was that a nice little thing they had going here in the church. Now, there were some there that followed Paul. They were proud pupils of Paul. And then there were those that followed Apollos. They were adoring admirers of Apollos. And then there were some that liked Simon Peter, Cephas, and they were the chummy cult of Cephas. And just look at these men for a moment. We don't have but a moment. Paul, we know, I think, more about him and Cephas than any other. He was intellectual. He was brilliant. He was courageous, but apparently not attractive physically. But those that who love the Word of God love Paul. Now, Simon Peter, he was fiery. He was rugged. He was weak at first, but he was a rugged preacher of the gospel. Great heart, very emotional. Then there was Paulus. He was one of the great preachers of the apostolic church who was not an apostle. He's never been given much recognition. He was a great preacher. I think he probably was the Billy Graham of that day. Now, these men were all strong personalities, and they never made the divisions. They all contended for the faith together. They maintained the unity of the Spirit, and they all three exalted Jesus Christ. But the members of the church, that current, they were making the divisions. Now, here's this little group. They say, oh, we love Brother Paul. He's so spiritual. And another says, well, I love Simon Peter because he pounds the pulpit and he's evangelistic. And the others said, oh, I love this man, Apollos. He soars to the heights and he reaches the multitude. Did you know all three of them were God's men? (laughs) But the church in Corinth was all divided because of this. And so Paul's going to talk to them about it. And he's going to show them that the centrality of Christ is the answer to the factions and fractions that you have in the church today. And that's the only solution, my friend. Until men and women are willing to come to the person of Christ, there'll be no solution. Then, actually, there was a fourth group there. And that fourth group, they were saying, an eye of Christ. Now, they actually were not really putting Christ first. But they were the super-duper spiritual group. And very frankly, they, I think, were the worst group of all. That's just my private opinion. And as a result, 
they made of Christ a little cult. And they had their little clique in the church. They excluded other believers. They were spiritual snobs, by the way. That's exactly what I would say that they are. And so we have these four groups. And there was no reason for there to be this division because you and I are living in a day when the church is being destroyed from the inside. The problems are not on the outside today. For instance, the pulpit has long since been destroyed by the liberals. And that'll destroy a church any time when a liberal gets in the pulpit. You go around Sunday night and at the midweek service, see what they have out. And then there's the pew today, and that's where they stir up strife. Begin to gather around a man, and the church fights have done more damage to the cause of Christ than alcohol, communism, and worldliness. And you find many churches there doing what they did in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee. They're feuding and a-fussing. You probably have heard that old corny song about the Martins and the Coys. They were reckless mountain boys, and they took up family feuding when they'd meet. They would shoot each other quicker than it took your eye to flicker. They could knock a squirrel's eye at 90 feet. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys. But old Abel Martin was the next to go. Though he saw the Coys a-coming, He'd hardly started running, for a volley shook the hills and laid him low. After that, they started out to fight in earnest, and they scarred the mountains up with shot and shell. There was uncles, brothers, cousins. They say they bumped them off by dozens. Just how many bit the dust, it's hard to tell. Oh, the Martins and the Coys, they were reckless mountain boys. At the art of killing, they became quite deaf. They all knowed they shouldn't do it. But before they hardly knew it, on each side they only had one person left. Well, may I say to you, that sounds pretty corny and very silly, but it's sure a picture of many churches today, right on the inside of them. They're feuding and a-fighting and a-fussing. And that is exactly what they were doing in the Corinthian church. Now, what is the answer to that? Well, It's given to us here in verse 13. What is the answer? Is Christ divided? And, of course, the answer is, of course, Christ is not divided at all. And anything that breaks up the unity in Christ has something wrong with it, friends. I don't care what it is. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? And the very interesting thing is that baptism became also a point of division among them. The crucifixion of Christ is the bedrock of Christian unity. And it's absurd to contemplate for anyone to let any individual divide us from the body. And then, were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Now, I do not really believe that Paul is talking here about water baptism, to tell the truth. That was always in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the one baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the question is, Paul says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. 
They weren't baptized in his name. Their baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they need to return to the person of Christ. And very candidly, I've always felt I can fellowship with any man, regardless of his label, if he can meet with me around the person of Christ. And now we have here, he says, I thank God that I baptize none of you but Crispus and Gaius. And I think here now he's talking about water baptism. And he said that he never specialized even in that because there's always a danger of going off in that direction and thinking that baptism saves you or that it actually has some mystical or some power that you couldn't get otherwise. And Paul says, I didn't emphasize it lest any should say that I'd baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. And besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Paul attached so little importance that he didn't even remember whether he'd baptized anyone else or not. He says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, we've come here to another very important matter. And very candidly, I feel like it's very important for the fact today that we are seeing a great many people that are dividing and separating on many issues. And this is the thing that causes the schisms and the strife that is in the church. Now, the church in Corinth was fractured by this party spirit. And the message of all three which they brought to Corinth, of Paul, Cephas, and Apollos, it had the unifying quality and power. And it was a fusion and not a faction that the gospel they preached emphasized. But the people there began, because they were babies, to put the emphasis on individual. Now, Paul emphasizes the centrality of the cross. And notice what he does again, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, the thing that was true here in this city of Corinth, and was true in many other cities, was an emphasis on philosophy. Now, let's see that as we move into this chapter here. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God. Now, the very interesting thing is that the cross divides the saved from the unsaved, but it doesn't divide the saved people. It should unite them, you see. But it does divide the saved from the unsaved, and we should see that. That's very important. The Dutch artist Rubens, he painted a picture of the last judgment. And you see the lost falling away into space, away from the throne of God. And as they fall, they cling together. Now, that's the accurate picture of the one world that men are working for today. The lost want to come together in one great unity, and they're going to accomplish a great union in the last days. But cutting right across the grain of the ecumenical environment and today's thinking, 
is the gospel of Christ. And the Lord Jesus called himself a divider of man. And the dividing line is his cross. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish, well, it's foolishness. But unto those that are saved, it's the power of God. Now, Paul makes it very clear that his method was not in the wisdom of the words of the world, not in the matter of dialectics or divisions or differences or opinions and theories, but he just presented the cross of Christ. Now, that brought about a unity. The preaching of cross is to them that perish foolishness, but the saved, why that cross becomes the power of God. Now, notice what he goes on to say. The result is that this divides the world, but it does not divide the church at all. Now, will you notice, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And you'll notice that it's not foolish preaching, but the foolishness of preaching. Verse 22, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I've read this extended section for a very definite purpose. Will you notice Paul divides mankind into two great ethnic groups. I think he rather recognizes a twofold division. Jews and Greeks are Gentiles. Now, the Jews represented religion. And they represented a God-given religion. They felt that they had the truth. And they did, as far as the Old Testament was concerned. But it had just become a ritual. They had departed from it. And the power was gone. And so when Christ appeared, you'll remember that they require a sign. They wanted a sign. Rather than to turn to their scriptures, they asked for a sign. And our Lord said, no sign will be given to you, but the sign of the prophet Jonah, sign of resurrection. Now, there were the Greeks. They were the Gentiles. They represent philosophy. Not religion, but philosophy. They were lovers of wisdom. They said they were seeking the truth. They were searching and scanning the universe for truth. They were the rationalists. The Jews ended up in ritual. The Gentiles ended up as rationalists, and they had to conform to a pattern of reason. About 400 years before Christ came, the Greek nation threw on the horizon of history a brilliance of mind and an artistic accomplishment in many fields that still dazzles and startles mankind, only extended for three centuries. That is, it was about 300 years before Christ. Then it just fizzled out. And men like Pericles, Anaxagoras, Thales, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they disappeared. They left certain schools, the Peripatetic School of Philosophy, the Stoic School of Philosophy, the Epicurean Stoic. Then you have 2,000 years of sterility and stagnation that came into the world. 
Then there was Bacon and Hobbes and Descartes. And you have the rebirth of thinkers. And then there was a brief period of brilliance and again decadence, and we're still in it. Although there's some boys around today that think they're smart. Well, what is truth? said the jesting Pilate. And Bacon, you remember, asked the same question. And philosophy is still asking the question, and it has no answers to the problems of life today. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That is the question that they've been asking. Now, philosophy, someone has defined philosophy as a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. They're searching for some theory or formula today. And man today feels like that through science that he's really got answers to some of the questions of life. Well, does he have the answers to the question of life? There's been some question about that. And here's a statement that appeared in a new book called The Suicide of the West by James Burnham. Listen to this. The truth is that modern man is over-impressed by his own achievements. To put a rocket into an orbit that is more than a 100 miles from the surface of the earth takes a great deal of joint thought and effort. But we tend to overstate the case. Though men who ride a few miles above the earth are called astronauts, this is clearly a misnomer. Men will not be astronauts until they ride among the stars. And it's unimportant to remember that most of the stars are thousands of light years away. The Russians are even more unrestrained in their overstatement, calling their men cosmonauts. Someone needs to say, little man, don't take yourself quite so seriously. You see, man today thinks he has a few answers. Where is the wise today? It's a pretty good question to ask. God's made foolish the wisdom of this world. For after that, in the wisdom, will you notice that, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. This is a tremendous statement, you see. Now, will you notice then what God says here? But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness. Now, the Jew found the cross a stumbling block, a scandal on. They wanted a sign. They wanted someone to show the way. They wanted a pointer. They wanted a highway marker. They wanted to deliver on a white charger, putting down the power of Rome is what they would have accepted. But Christ crucified was an insult to them, and they didn't want to accept that at all. That meant defeat and not victory. As it is written, Paul says in Romans 9:33, "...behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed." And then in 1 Peter 2, 7, "...unto you therefore which believe he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to them which stumble." at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they thought the cross was foolishness and absurdity. 
It was utterly preposterous and ridiculous. It was contrary to any rational worldly system. In Rome, they found a caricature of Christianity, a figure on the cross with an ass's head. May I say to you, that's the way they're doing it today, ridiculing our Savior. Now, Paul bears down on philosophy. He says in Acts 18:6, And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, He's in Athens now. Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I'll go unto the Gentiles. But can philosophy lift a man out of the cesspool of this life? It never has. And not foolish preaching, but the preaching of foolishness. That is the cross. That's not a method. It's a message. Men reject it today. And you find that the wisdom of the world today is to have an anti-poverty program. May I say that we have a school down at the edge of Watts. We don't get too much support and recognition from that. It was there long before they had rights. May I say that they need the gospel down there. But no one's thought of that. And Beverly Hills in Southern California needs the gospel also. Now, Paul introduces another class of mankind, neither Jews nor Gentiles. They are the call, the elect. Not merely those who heard the invitation, but those who responded to it and found in the cross the wisdom and power of God. And it transformed their lives, and it made them new men. And it took 12 men, molded 11 of them, and then the Lord Jesus took Saul of Tarsus. And now the city of Corinth with its sin, and Ephesus with its religion, And for 1,900 years, the gospel has been going around the world today, and it's the only help and hope of mankind. Will you notice, he says, we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, The weakness of God is stronger than men. And he says, We see our calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It's a custom today of some to try to talk about the great that have accepted Christ, the Hollywood stars, the great leaders of industry, and the prominent in government today. But the important thing is God is still calling the multitudes average people just like you are and like I am. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world. Now, they are not foolish. They are foolish to the world. And they are not weak. They are weak to the world. But this is God's method. And he even chooses base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen and things that are not to bring to naught, things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. We haven't anything to glory about. But listen to this. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God he's made unto us wisdom. He's everything you need. Oh, my friend, it's in Christ today. I wish I could get that over to you. He's been made to us wisdom, and he's our righteousness. He's our sanctification and our redemption. And whatever you need, you find it in him today, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, 
Let him glory in the Lord. Glory in the Lord Jesus Christ today. What do you glory in? What are you boasting of today? Are you boasting of your degrees, your wisdom? Are you boasting today of your wealth, your power? Are you boasting of your position, your character? My friend, you have nothing to boast of. And believe me, I know I haven't. But we can boast of Christ, and he's everything. He's everything that we need today. Oh, that you and I might see that. Now, in chapter 2, we've come now to the clarity of the Holy Spirit, and that corrects human wisdom. We saw something about that last time. But in chapter 1, it was the centrality of Christ crucified that corrects divisions. And the clarity of the Holy Spirit corrects human wisdom. Now, will you notice here that Paul begins, "...and I, brethren..." When I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, or declaring unto you the mystery of God. Now, there are two things here I'd like to call your attention to. The first is that Paul did not use the philosophic method of preaching. He was not a textual or a topical preacher, but he was an expositor of the Word of God. And I personally believe that that is God's method. It's our Lord's method, by the way. Now, he says, first of all, that he didn't come with high-flown language and the wisdom of the world and declaring to them the testimony are as it is the mystery of God. Now, what does he mean by mystery? Well, the word mystery is a word that we'll bump up against again in this epistle, and we'll go into detail. But it means simply here, that which had not been revealed before. The mystery of God was now the fact that Christ is crucified. That is something that had not been revealed before. Now it is revealed. It was only back in the Old Testament in type, and in prophecy. Now he says in verse 2, "...for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified." In other words, Paul did not enter into these philosophical discussions that gender to strife, but rather he stuck to his last, as a good shoemaker would. He stayed right with the preaching of the cross of Christ, a crucified Savior, one who had died for the sins of the world. And again, may I say, that is the type of ministry that is so desperately needed today. Now, we find in verse 3, "...and I was with you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling." Paul opens up his own heart and lets you see his inmost thoughts and his thinking when he was there among them, that he was greatly disturbed. He was in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And little wonder, then, that he could say God has chosen the weak things of the world. God has chosen the things that are not. Paul had no exalted conception of himself, and yet he was a great intellect, a great man, I think, in many ways. 
but he never thought of himself like that. He says in verse 4, "...in my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." And we have a great many words of man's wisdom today. And there's a great deal of preaching, but very little of it is done in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that, again, is the thing that is needed today. There is a feeling today if we get the right method or if we have the right sermon or if we say the right thing. Important thing is that it be in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. In other words, if human wisdom is used to win a man, then his faith stands on that. But if he's been brought to faith through the power of God, then his faith rests upon that. That's the reason that I severely question a great deal of this apologetic preaching today. That is, trying to prove the Bible is God's Word and trying to prove that the first chapter of Genesis is scientific and that the flood really happened. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think there's a place for that. And thank God for the men who've gone into those areas and specialize that. But we do need to understand that salvation does not rest upon whether you can actually prove the inspiration of Scriptures. Now, I think you can do it, but that's not the question. The question is, what does your faith rest upon? What does your faith rest upon? Well, I think our faith rests upon the power of God. It rests upon that. And therefore, since it rests upon that, and it won't rest upon these other things, as important as they might be, and the part they might play in calling our attention to the Word of God. But faith must stand on the power of God. Therefore, Paul goes on to say this. He says, "...how be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect." That is, what kind of wisdom? Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. Paul says, I do not use the worldly methods at all, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Now, here is this word mystery again. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now, again, we have this word here, mystery. And let's be very clear that it's not a whodunit. That which is a mystery today for most of us would naturally be a whodunit. Or we'd read in the paper that someone was murdered and they hadn't found the guilty party yet. And it was quite a mystery of how all of this came about. Well, it was a mystery. What do you mean then by a mystery? Well, in that case, it would mean something that we didn't know about. We didn't know the answer to it. Well, actually, the word is used in the Scripture here is a word that means more than that. It means not something that is not understood. It's something that hasn't been understood in the past and is now understood. It's something that is very clear. 
Now, this word mystery occurs about 27 times in the New Testament. It occurs three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and always on the lips of our Lord, but it refers to the same parables. He says, unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, these mystery parables, and for instance, Matthew 13, why are they mystery parables? Because they tell of the direction that the kingdom is going to take in the interval between the rejection of the king until the time he comes to set up his kingdom. That actually had not been revealed in the Old Testament at all. God had not yet revealed that to man. Now he is revealing that to man. Now we speak, he says, God's wisdom in a mystery. And that is something that is quite interesting here. It's a word that came out of the Greek schools of philosophy, of the occult, and of science. And Paul fastened on it, and he says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. But he gives it an entirely new meaning. Mystery comes from a word meaning mouth, and it means to shut the mouth. You know, it's a shush proposition. But Paul never so used it. That which had been silent has become vocal. That which had not been known and could not be known as the result of human investigation, now it's known. A mystery in the New Testament always means something undiscoverable by the activity of the human intellect. But it's revealed so that human intellect can understand it. A mystery is something which has been revealed so that it may be apprehended with the mind of man and the human intellect. Now, we have a wisdom. Paul says we have a philosophy. It's not of this age. It's not of this world. And it's God's wisdom. And it pertains to the cross of Christ. This is the wonderful thing he's saying here. Now he moves on. He says we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, they did not know. But as it's written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, here's a verse that has surely been misunderstood. It's gone to a funeral too many times, and I don't think this verse should go to a funeral. I've heard it used when I was a boy in the country, old doctor so-and-so or somebody, he's dead. Now there's his remains there right before us. And when he was here, why, he wasn't able to see too well. He didn't hear too well. He didn't understand too well. But he's arrived now, and he understands everything. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this, that right here and now, there are certain things that the eye hath not seen. There are certain things you can't get with your eye gate, and we learn more through our eye gate than we do any other way. But there are certain things you can't learn through the eye gate, nor ear gate. Now, the ear is another way we learn. We learn by hearing. And yet, there are certain things you can't get just through the ear gate. And neither entered into the heart of man, that is, by cogitation, by thinking, by reasoning, there are certain things you could never attain. God never had a Columbus. You can't discover him. You can't, by searching, find out God. 
Well, of course you cannot. Now, these are things that you can't learn. The things which God has prepared for them that love him. You don't get it by the eye gate, the ear gate, or by reasoning at all. Well, how are you going to get it? But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now, what he's simply saying here is that which you can't get through the eye gate, the ear gate, why, the Spirit of God can teach it to you. Now, there's certain things in the Bible that you can get through the eye gate, and you can get through the ear gate, and you can get through reasoning. I used to tell students that, and there are a lot of pious students, think God's going to give them answers to questions on examination. And I had a few like that. They felt like if they sort of stuck their Bible under the pillar the night before exam, that the answers would come up through the duck feathers into their head somewhere or another. Some silly thing like that. Well, my friend, you're not going to learn that method at all. There are certain things you can get by study in the Bible. The history of it. You can learn the poetry of it. And there are many things you can learn by using your head and by study. But you can't get spiritual truth that way because the important thing is God hath revealed them unto us by Spirit. There's certain things only the Spirit of God can reveal to us. And then he says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, you and I understand each other because we have the Spirit of man. I know how you feel when you fall down. For instance, embarrassing, isn't it? And I watched an elder of mine one snowy morning in Nashville come out of his house, and he slipped and fell. He had two scuttles full of ashes. He's taken out to the alleyway to empty in his garbage can, and he held on to him. He didn't spell on ash, but he sure fell hard. And he got up and looked all over the landscape to see if anybody's looking at him. Why did he do that? Well, I knew exactly how he felt because I was dying laughing. He's embarrassed by it. I have a spirit of man. He has a spirit of man. But I don't know how God feels. I do not know that. And if I'm to understand anything about God, he'll have to reveal it to me. Now, Paul says, verse 12, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, there's certain things that we can only understand that the Spirit of God reveals to us. And he does it freely. He wants to be our teacher. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, he makes this very profound statement here, and it's an axiom of Scripture. It's a very familiar verse. But the natural man, now that is the man that's unsaved. That's the way we're born into the world. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We have no capacity for God. We're an enemy of God. Now the natural man, he receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Now I hear this constantly of our program. A man told me he was a salesman. He's back east. He said, I just was going down the dial on my car radio. I was traveling to another town where I was to speak. And he said, I heard you come on. And I said, you're another preacher, and I'm tired of listening. And he said to them, and he started to turn me out, and he said, well, he's teaching the Bible. 
And I was dealing with, I don't know what passage, but he said, I wonder what he'll say about that. And he began to listen. Now, he resisted that. In fact, he finally cut me off and he said, that fellow's some sort of a nut, a religious nut. But the next day, traveling to another town, he said, I'll listen again. And he listened again. And then coming back through, he remembered the time and he listened again. And finally came to the Lord. But the natural man, he receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness unto him. And believe me, if you're listening to me right now, friend, and you're not a Christian, if you don't think what I'm saying is foolish, there's something wrong with you or me, one of us, we're wrong. Because God says that the natural man, this type of thing is foolishness to him. That is the preaching of the cross of Christ for salvation. And he says, neither can he know them. And I used to think in college, I had the high-minded notion that anything any man wrote, I could understand. Well, I found out that wasn't true. And you certainly are not going to know the Word of God till the Spirit of God opens your mind and heart to understand it. He says here, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, only the Spirit of God can take the things of Christ and show them unto us. Now, the Lord Jesus said that. He said, when I go, I'm going to send him unto you. Now, when he comes, he'll not speak of himself. He'll take the things of mine and show them unto you. And friend, until the Spirit of God shows you the things of Christ, my speaking is certainly in vain. Now, verse 15, but he that is spiritual, that is, he that has the Holy Spirit, a child of God, he judgeth all things. That is, he understands these things, yet himself he's not understood. He is judged of no man. That is, no man's able to understand him. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, you can't tell God anything, but he can tell you a great deal. And he can't until we have the mind of Christ. That is, till the Spirit of God takes these things and show them unto us. Now, I'd like to make an experiment with you today. Now, out yonder, listening in, right now is a great company of folk. Now, in that company right now, there's people that are not Christians. You probably listened to this hour for some reason. I don't know why. Or you've listened to part of it, or maybe you've tuned us out by now. But if today you are not a saved person, don't you really think that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to you? Don't you think that for a man to die on the cross, which looks like total defeat, doesn't that impress you as being not salvation, but being something that's rather foolish? And yet God says this is his method, this is his wisdom, that he gave his son to die on the cross for you in order that you might be saved and that you'll have to trust him to be saved. Now, does that impress you as being foolish? Now, if you're unsaved today, we're making this experiment. Would you mind just dropping me a note and saying to me, Preacher, I listen to you, and you want to know my reaction, and I want to tell you, I think that what you're saying is rather foolish. I can't see how that's important. 
I can't see how that is going to save anyone. Now, if that is your experience, why, write and let me know. And if it's not your experience, I'd like to know. And then if you're a child of God, I'd like your reaction. Now, I heard the other day from a man who's a comedian. I've not read his letter and don't intend to. He's a comedian in a nightclub. He listens to our program. He thinks that I am, without doubt, an oddball. He thinks I'm funnier than he is. And you know that's the way it should be. What's your reaction? Now, you will recall that we were looking at the clarity of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God corrects human wisdom, and that was in chapter 2. And there Paul presented to us two classes of mankind. There was the natural man, and that natural man is the man that is a son of Adam, born into the world with a sinful nature. Now, that means when you say a sinful nature, it's a propensity to do evil. In fact, that's about all we can do. We come into the world... As sinners, we're alienated from God and rebellion against God. And even when we do good, we always act from mixed motives. We ought to always search our hearts as believers and see whether we're acting from a mixed motive or not, even when we're trying to do the Lord's work. This is the natural man. Now, Paul says the natural man will not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. That's the natural man. I received in the mail from Washington, D.C., from a representative from this area, a politician, a report. And, by the way, you'd read that report and you'd think that he's going to bring in the utopia and the millennium all together. My, he's got a happy solution for all the problems of the world. And, of course, the opposite party doesn't have the benefit of his vast wisdom and knowledge. Well, when you read it through, it's very discouraging and very disappointing. Because, first of all, you know he can't do what he's saying. And then you recognize you're listening to a natural man. He has no understanding of that which is spiritual whatsoever. And therefore, he's not really interested in any spiritual solution to the problem. Now, he can solve the drug problem, but not in a spiritual way. And he can solve lawlessness, but not in a spiritual way. He has absolutely no knowledge of that. He doesn't know any more about spiritual matters than a goat grazing grass on a hillside. That is the sad plight of us today. Someone asked Gladstone years ago, what's the mark of a great statesman? He said the mark of a great statesman is a man who knows the direction God is going for the next 50 years. Well, we don't seem to have many, or probably I should take the M off and say we don't seem to have any politicians around like that today that know the direction God is going. But that's the natural man. Now, you can't blame him. He may be sincere. However, I suspect the report of this man 
has to do in a way with him being reelected. I have that feeling. Because everything that he's ever done, he's done it as a politician wanting to be elected to office. And that is the sad state of our nation at the present moment. And it's enough to break the heart of those who love this country and would love to see it prosper again under God. But we are very far from him today. Now, that's the natural man. We can't expect too much of him, and we probably ought not to be critical of him because he's doing the best he knows how. And that's another thing he'll tell you, that he's doing the best he knows how. And that's probably the only true statement that he's made. Now, there is another man, and Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 2, "...but he that is spiritual..." He judgeth all things, rather he discerns all things. He has a spiritual discernment, and that spiritual discernment makes him really misunderstood by the world because they can't quite understand why he's doing or saying what he is doing or saying. Now, this is the spiritual man and the natural man. Now, if you will note that they are that kind because of their relationship to the Word of God, to the book, to the natural man, it's foolishness. And the spiritual man, he discerns the Word of God, and he recognizes its importance. 